Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. When the Islamic State swept through Iraq and Syria in 2014, its force contained an estimated 40,000 foreign fighters, recruits from all over the world that had signed up to its fanatical, destructive creed. Of these foreign fighters, according to credible estimates, nearly a 1,000 came from Britain, including the notorious killer known as Jihadi John, seen beheading hostages in horrific videos. Much less well-known were those volunteers that went to fight the Islamic State. Like modern-day members of the international brigades that fought fascism in Spain, these people travelled to a war zone to fight something that they felt was evil. And one of those people was Mesa Gifford. I'm delighted to have Mesa with us today here in the bunker. Mesa, welcome. It's good to be here. So, Mesa, I've just set the scene there very briefly, but perhaps you could just Tell our listeners how it came to be that you, somebody who was working in the city as a as a bond trader, if I'm not mistaken, found himself carrying a Kalashnikov and fighting a war in Syria. Well, yeah, I think we can all remember where we were when the Islamic State burst onto the world stage. They've been around for quite some time. Um, Anyone who's been following the conflict in Iraq uh, and in Syria, of course, over the last few years will know that um, it has its origins in the insurgency against the Americans, uh, Zakawi and and all the rest. But it was only when they started capturing journalists and humanitarian workers and beheading them on TV, it was only when they surrounded Kobani and Sinjar Mountain, did the British people become inundated with the worst horrors that the Syrian conflict could throw at them. And um, I I suppose I was more exposed than the average person. I was actually working in foreign exchange at the time, spending a lot of time researching what was moving the markets, what was going on in the world. And I became fascinated with this conflict in the Middle East, appalled at at the violence, at the people being burnt in cages, the homosexual men being thrown from buildings. And I just couldn't understand why Britain and America weren't coming up with a a solid uh, plan to fight back. And um, I suppose I've got a background in internationalism. I've I've worked in Zimbabwe against Robert Mugabe's ZANU-PF. I was working for the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change there. I've done expeditions into the rainforest in the Congo. I've worked with the British Council in um, Ethiopia. So this didn't come out of a clear blue sky. I've got a background in humanitarian work. And because the Kurdish forces on the ground fighting ISIS appealed for international volunteers, I think it was for that reason that I sort of said to myself, well, I've got to do something. I I want to do something. I think it was uh, just after Christmas 2014, I left the UK and went to Syria to to fight ISIS. It's an incredible thing. I mean, you, you said that you had a bit of a background in terms of your sort of engagement in international affairs, if I'm not mistaken. I think you studied international relations. That's right. You'd, work, you'd worked in Zimbabwe. But it's still a big jump to deciding to sign up to be in a war. You, you, you hadn't been in the army, had you? Or you didn't have that kind of background? No, I didn't. I suppose this, for me, this wasn't about fighting. This was actually more about um, standing in solidarity. Because the, at the time, I was researching who was fighting back against ISIS, uh, who was being the most successful uh, in fighting back. I learned a lot more about the Peshmerga. I learned a lot more and discovered for the first time the YPG and the YPJ, which would later become the SDF. So I, as I said, I became fascinated with the conflict. I wanted to know 
who were the local people who believed in democracy, believed in secular values, who were literally the opposite of ISIS, who could one day inherit Syria if we were to uh, fight back and defeat ISIS and uh, if we were to get rid of the Assad dictatorship and and everything else. And I, I truly believed that the cause in, in northeastern Syria with the Kurds was one that I could support. The, the leap that it takes for a, for a guy for an average normal guy who's just working in the city and has a ba- has a mild background in humanitarian work to jump straight into fighting is unusual to say the least but i suppose um i didn't see it as a simply as a war it was uh, it was about internationalism and as you said in your intro i'm a big fan of george orwell i'm a big fan of pushing myself and going out there if you push yourself if you throw yourself in the deep end you can actually produce meaningful change or at least contribute to it. So um, it may seem radical, but for me and my background, I really didn't think it was. So you you, you sort of signed up the, to the YPG's appeal. What did it mean in practice? Because presumably, you know, th- this isn't something where you go to a big building with a sign that says YPG and fill in forms. How did you actually get there? What, what, what was the journey? Well, it was. Um, I, th- I suppose that the, the conflict in Syria has been curious. It's been world leading in many different ways. I suppose the use of social media has been key in this, uh, and in the Arab Spring as well. Obviously, Twitter in, in Cairo and all the rest of it uh, contributed to the protests there in Syria. ISIS used Twitter and Facebook to an incredibly uh, good degree. I mean, uh, the the use of the terrible acts of violence were softened by other ISIS propaganda, which showed ISIS fighters cuddling kittens, for example. And um, there's one picture that sticks in my mind of jihadist fighters jumping into a swimming pool. And the tagline above it was five star jihad. It was no surprising that something like a thousand British people went to join ISIS and tens of thousands more from around the world also went because yeah. this uh, their use of social media was incredibly good. And it go that what goes for ISIS, goes for the Kurds as well. They also put out the appeal on Facebook. They yeah. had a, a website called the Lions of Rojava, which was about internationalists going out and joining the, uh, the YPG and the YPJ. And it was through them that I contacted the Kurds for the first time. So it was all online, which is a very modern way, I suppose, of con- conducting a conflict. But then in, in practical terms, what, what, what was your route to northeast Syria? Because you, you couldn't just fly there directly, presumably. No, but I could get pretty close. So we flew to Suleimaniyah in northern Iraq. Yeah. I was met at the airport by a, a contact within the YPJ, uh, sort of a, a diplomat who was liaising with the, the Kurds there. And they facilitated my trip across the border, uh, which just pretty much was just driving all the way to the border. And in the middle of the night, jumping into a, a speedboat on the river and crossing into Syria for the first time. It, it literally took me about 48 hours from the airport into Syria for the first time. And how did you feel that moment? You you jump onto a speedboat in the middle of the night. Any sort of thoughts of, you know, have I got into something here that I perhaps shouldn't have? I think I felt that a, a lot uh, as the hours went by. On my way to northern Iraq, I stopped in Turkey for a few hours to change planes. And again, you're thinking to yourself, is this the right thing to do? And it's only when I suppose that you're in the safe house for the first time that you meet Kurds for the first time, and you see wounded Kurds, people who had been fighting recently in Syria and who had crossed the border into Iraq to receive medical treatment, that, you, that, you, that, the, that the conflict becomes incredibly real to you. Um, and if there was ever a time to turn back, if I had had any doubts in my mind, 
I think then would, would have been it. But I was so determined to get boots on the ground, talk to local people. And then I suppose more importantly, because they don't need a British guide to come out and fight for them. There are already tens of thousands of local people fighting back. But what they do need is good PR, is someone who can actually uh, join them, stand in solidarity with them, and then come back to the UK and articulate their cause to a Western audience, which was something I was incredibly keen to do. To talk just a little bit more about the, the people you were around, you came from the UK, you had sort of brothers in arms and, and, and colleagues who'd come from other countries, Australia, Germany, all over the place. Could you say a little bit about the sorts of people you found yourself fighting alongside, of course, along with the Kurds themselves, and what had brought them all there to, to northeast Syria? I've, I've often described international volunteers as a broad church, to say the least. If you're going to recruit online, all kinds of people are going to turn up. When I joined in those early days, the international program was very poorly developed. It was it was in its infancy. So um, just about anyone was turning up. Uh, the Kurds didn't know how to deal with us. They didn't know what kind of training we needed. They themselves were in were quite poorly organized. Um, they weren't receiving very much support from the West. Um, they'd only just started receiving airstrikes in support of them in places like Kobani, which was the first sign to the West that actually these are these are people that are worth backing because our airstrikes are working in support of them. And uh, the people that were turning up were a real interesting band. So, for example, the international volunteers have changed over time. My first opinion of them was that a lot of them were from Anglosphere countries, so yeah. from Britain, America, Australia. A lot of them were former military guys, and they weren't necessarily leftists and internationals. A lot of other people came out because they had fought in Iraq, they'd fought in Afghanistan, they'd seen the worst of these terrorists in the past, and they wanted to come out as volunteers to fight alongside Kurds. Others were adventure seekers, others didn't have anything better to do back home, <laughs> and just simply wanted an adventure. Let's talk a bit about the Kurds. I mean, one of the things you mentioned is that some of the people who, who were with you there had had themselves, you know, had, had seen combat in Iraq and, and that perhaps had inspired them to come back, which you might, you know, that might seem contradictory because you might think, well, once you've been there, you don't want to go back. But I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of people develop a real sense of uh, kind of passion for the Kurds and, and what they're trying to achieve. Could you say a little bit about sort of how you perceive the Kurds and their situation and their aspirations, I guess. Yeah, well, I've, I've had a huge amount of sympathy for the Kurds uh, for many years now. I'm 34 years old. I was 27 when I first went to Syria to fight. I am a true millennial. Um, I grew up during the so-called War on Terror. The first time I even heard about the Kurdish people were about southern Kurdistan, which is northern Iraq, and the yeah. Kurds there supporting the Americans and um, fighting back against Saddam and the, the terrible injustices against them in Halebja and other places. So I'd already heard about the Kurds. I have to say, I didn't know a huge amount about the Kurds in, and I'd heard about the PKK, but I yeah. knew very little about the Kurds in Rojava and also the PYD, which is the political wing of the YPG and the YPJ, which is the military wing of the Kurds in, in Rojava. So um, it was a journey of discovery for me. I've got a, an immense amount of sympathy for the Kurdish people, which is the largest population on the planet who don't have their own country. There's something like 50 million Kurds who have their own languages, they have their own culture, and they've been divided by imperialism, nationalism, uh, and they've been terribly abused 
by the countries that they exist in. The Kurds in Rojava uh, are fighting back against Assad, and they're also fighting back against ISIS, and they're trying to create a secular and democratic region within Syria, which is actually, I would hope, a template an example of what a future decentralized Syria might look like. So there are many things that we could actually learn from northeastern Syria, completely aside from the amazing successes they've had against the Islamic State. And one of the things that I think, um, if, if I've understood sort of you correctly in some of your writings, is ultimately you saw your own participation as a kind of almost a civilizational struggle. And, you know, ISIS represents such a an awful kind of threat to our civilization. And in in an interesting way, the Kurds can be sort of, it could be suggested that they're the ones who kind of saved our civilization from ISIS, because ultimately they were the ones that that led this fight more than any other group. Is that is that correct? Yeah, well, I've, I've long said that the Middle East, it's the, the frustrating thing with the West and its policy towards the Middle East is we feel like... Um, transport uh, it's it's we haven't it's not been bottom up peace building it's been top down um, in iraq after the topple of saddam we created institutions we took american democracy and, and implanted it in the middle east but the beauty of what the kurds are doing is this is an indigenous movement it's coming from them which is and they're talking about such amazing things like women's rights, about uh, gay rights, about progressive values. And it's right in the heart of the Middle East. And it's come off the back of the most brutal and terrible war that has divided people. Uh, And I've often described what the Kurds have been doing in eastern Syria as the healing effect of democratic confederalism, which is their um, ideology, which they're fighting for. Uh, It's not something I completely subscribe to. By utilizing such uh, such discourse as equality and and secularism and and as I said progressive values, that's what's going to heal Syria in the long term. This is a a long term fight, and unless the West listens to local people and nurtures local people and their ideas, um, it's going to only get worse. One of the things that. I think your story sort of could help people understand is actually this question of sort of cultural diversity, because obviously we talk quite a bit about the Kurds and clearly they have their own culture, which is which is not part of the, the Arab culture of the Middle East. It's a sort of separate cultural unit. But you mentioned uh, Yazidis, which is a Christian, uh, which is a religious minority. And then I think at one point you were working with one of the the Christian sort of minority groups there. Could could you say a little bit about this? Because I think people have this misunderstanding that it's a monolithic region where everyone is an Arab and a Muslim, whereas in fact it's much more complicated than that. Oh, absolutely. And I have to say, even I was incredibly naive before I set foot in Syria of how diverse the country is. Uh, We talk a lot in the UK about multiculturalism, but actually if you want to seek out multiculturalism, anywhere, look to the Middle East. Often on campaigns when we were fighting Christians, Yazidis, Arabs, um, or, or Muslim communities were living side by side with each other. And it was just incredible to be going into a village fighting and there being a Christian church. And then literally a mile down the road, once we pushed ISIS out of that particular community, going down there and then seeing a Yazidi temple. There was a point in my book where I describe a moment where I 
I kicked down a door of a building and inside was um, a picture of the Virgin Mary and uh, there was Christian symbols just everywhere. And I was joined by a couple of other Kurdish fighters in the room. And one of them pulled out a cross and another one pulled out some Muslim prayer, prayer breeds. And I started to realize, um, or I should point out, the YPG was multi-ethnic and um, and very diverse long before the STF was created because it had to be, because these communities were under threat of being utterly annihilated by ISIS. And with American urging and, and support, they created the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a lot more, it embraces all the cultures and communities in northeastern Syria. And joining that was is very important. And that's why I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just serving in Kurdish units. I didn't want people to say, oh, Mesa Gifford, the internationalist fighter, only fights for Kurdish units. So absolutely not. I fought alongside Kurds, Christians, Arabs, Yazidis, all the communities of Syria who were fighting back against the literal fascists and the death cult of ISIS. And that that's internationalism, after all. If you look at that sort of map of the region, do you believe, I think there's, there's sort of two big questions that, that might might sort of stretch into the future. One is, do you believe that the, the Syrian Kurds will be able to have some kind of homeland, in, maybe in some kind of federal structure? And the second question is, what do you think of ISIS? Because ISIS has not disappeared from the map, it's just sort of very much subdued. Mm, absolutely. Well, I, I, my hope for the future is is of a unified but federated Syria. Assad's position is untenable. Um, if there was a deal done whereby he would remain president for a few years while uh, a new constitution is put together and people are brought in and, and uh, around the negotiating table in Geneva, and then he steps down, perhaps a rotating presidency. Perhaps we could the presidency could lose power and um, there could be. Uh, regional government will become the uh, defining feature of any future uh, Syrian democracy. But either way, I would hope that the Syrian Kurds and the Christians and the Arabs and the Yazidis would get a lot more control over their own affairs. I, I think that would actually move on to my second point, which is how do you defeat ISIS long term? ISIS and all extremists, these people, they wedge themselves wherever there's division. They exploit things like poverty, lack of education, etc., to uh, to fuel the, the conflict that they want to see. I've often said that Britain and America and the rest of the West are missing a trick by supporting the SDF in defeating ISIS uh, in doing so, destroying a lot of in- infrastructure, something like 80% of Raqqa, a city I fought in, is, has been destroyed by airstrikes. And yeah. I'm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't actually criticize the, the West for that. They did a great job in supporting the SDF. Something like 12,000 SDF fighters died fighting ISIS. But if we're quick to arm the SDF, if we're quick to bomb in support of them, we need to be just as fast as in, in rebuilding and investing in infrastructure and, and investing in local uh, democracy. And that's what's going to defeat ISIS long term because they are going to exploit the ongoing distress of the Syrian people to fuel their future aims. They just want to be seen to be surviving. They're going to attack us in places like India, and they're going to attack us in Africa, and they just want to show themselves as uh, an enduring force in the world. And the best way to undermine that is obviously keep up the tempo of, of military action, but also to invest in local people and to make sure that the, the fertile ground that they can develop in is cut off. It's an incredibly good point, that last one. And I guess it, that leads me on to sort of uh, two two kind of final questions from me. One is, uh, 
actually about you. What are you doing now? What does a former international volunteer in a Kurdish militia do when, <laughs> when he's come home? Um, to answer, I didn't put a huge amount of thought into that at the time. It was uh, career planning. <laughs> it wasn't career planning. Didn't come into it. This was something that I uh, I felt was an urgent need. I just went out, and then I said to myself, "Look, I'm not going to leave this conflict until I see ISIS degraded and defeated." Um, and I, the best time I saw that was after Raqqa, when I saw them from the top of my position limping out of the city in buses that we had provided. And sure enough, the war would drag on for another year. But the reason I didn't come back was not because I was completely tired and that I had enough and I just wanted to move on with my life. That's certainly true to a degree. But what I saw in Raqqa was a defeated and spent force. And these people then fled into the desert where they spent the next 12 months going from place to place and finally ending in... um, That was the little island on on the river, wasn't it? Exactly. And they were almost on top of each other. Every airstrike, every mortar that landed would blow up 20 or 30 of them. And these desperate people were living in utter filth and misery. And it was a real difference between what I had seen on TV when I'd seen them standing arrogantly over those humanitarian workers and cutting off their heads and saying that they were going to invade Rome and burn down Buckingham Palace and kill the Queen and all the rest of it. Suddenly they they were living in filth. I came back after Raqqa and I just wanted to move on. I just wanted to talk about my experiences. I wrote a book, uh, Fighting Evil, which told people why I went and what I what I did while I was there. And now I'm uh, trying to write another book uh, about something completely different. So I've moved on. And I think that's what I truly believe about internationalism is that I wanted to go out. I wanted to do something. I've, I felt like I've done what I set out to achieve and now I want to leave. I can remember there's a little story here that, Uh, There was a friend that I had there called Jake, and he was an American guy, real troubled character. The grass was Mm. always greener on the other side. He fought in Manbej, had a terrible time, saw his best friend killed and had been injured himself, had gone back to the US. And instead of settling down with his family, he came back for Raqqa. And I can vividly remember saying to him, dude, you shouldn't be here. Go back to your family. You'll be better for it. And But no, he wanted to carry on fighting. He wanted to see the end of ISIS. He perhaps wanted to join the SDF after ISIS was defeated. And I can remember using an analogy with him, which was, I said to him um, for a joke, I said, do you know those guys at a party where the the DJ stopped one o'clock in the morning, people, people have gone home after a great night and there's still a couple of people dancing away trying to keep that party going. And I was like, dude, you've, um, we've, do- we've done what we came to here to achieve. And I want to leave here knowing uh, with a fond memory of saying that I survived, that I contributed to this battle, but then move on. People like J- Jake actually killed himself in Raqqa uh, after, uh, you know. a few months after the Battle of Raqqa. So it's, um, I think the international volunteers were a lot of flawed characters, and, uh, um, but people who were genuinely motivated by good. Definitely. And, and I guess then my final question, which in a way leads on from, from that you know, rather tragic story you've just told us, is that there will be people who, who are inspired by what you've told us and inspired by the wider question about how that you can make something as simple as sort of democracy and freedom survive and what's your advice to people if they don't want to uh, join a kurdish militia <laughs> but they want to make a difference what suggestions do you have well i've i've as i said i've long argued that 
being a person of action, going out and getting your hands dirty is a good thing. When it comes to actually fighting, the situation in Syria was actually very unique. Uh, I'm actually very lucky not to have been prosecuted for the time that I I was in Syria. Um, And there's a very simple reason for that. I was not ideologically or religiously motivated. And in in the big scheme of things, I think the British police decided that I didn't fall under current legislation. Uh, my big warning to people who want to go out and do something very similar to this is you can actually be a get, you can actually find, wind, wind up in a court. Um, so I would never recommend doing what I did. And I'm just lucky that the situation was as it was. But when it comes to actually going out and getting your hands dirty, actually going out to refugee camps, filming, utilizing social media, I built something like 50,000 followers online. I wrote articles. I did uh, documentaries. I did everything I possibly could to articulate the Kurdish cause in the West. I said, yes, to everything. And I and the power of social media and the millions of hits that I, I got off the back of it, I think did much more work than I did on the battlefield, if I'm honest. Getting out and utilizing your voice, lobbying people, writing and getting your hands dirty, I would always advocate that as whatever cause you're fighting for, that's the right thing to do. Well, that's a fantastic place to stop. I'm sure a lot of people will have been incredibly impressed and inspired by your story and your words. So thank you so much for joining us, Mesa. Mesa's book, Fighting Evil, can be found at Amazon and I'm sure elsewhere. And and it's a fascinating read. And that's Mesa Gifford. Thank you for coming to The Bunker. Thank you very much. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with Start Your Week on Mondays and the main panel show on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.